Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, on to the show. I am here sitting in the offices of Edward Chin. I always uh, enjoy doing in-person interviews. I don't have an opportunity to do a very mu- many of them, but uh, for people that come through visiting into Hong Kong or uh, are based here, which you are, uh, uh, I always enjoy doing it face-to-face because I find it more engaging. Let me just introduce uh, you to the show, Ed. Thank you so much for your time again. Um, today's sh- show guest is Ed Chin. He's a partner at MDE Hedge Center and is the executive director of a multi-billion dollar hedge fund portfolio. Portfolio. He's a keen believer in impact investing and is active in press freedom and the democratic movement in Asia. MDE advises on hedge fund startups from both a regulatory and connectivity standpoint. So we're going to have a very interesting discussion today, and uh, it's going to focus around a lot of issues about Hong Kong. I've actually been looking forward to having this conversation, and uh, so thank you again for for taking the time. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about investing at the end, but um, I want to focus today on uh, sort of what you're most dedicated and passionate and working on right now. So for the audience uh, listening in, perhaps uh, you could just give us a brief uh, background explanation of, uh, you know, who you are, you know, where you're from and uh, and uh, and what you do now. Sure. I, I was educated uh, in Hong Kong. Um, I went for a high school here um, at a school called Diocesan Boys School and then left for um, Canada. I briefly studied in the U.S. at uh, U of Minnesota, at first uh, studying speech communication. And I find out uh, it's difficult to get a job as a broadcaster um, if I move back to Canada, so switch back to business. And uh, did my MBA at uh, U of Toronto. That was uh, way back 20-some-odd years ago. Um, I did um, full-time run a radio um the Chinese section of a radio, uh, a multicultural radio station in Toronto called CHIN, stands for Canadian International Network, before uh, the handover. And then switch back to uh, finance, uh, running US and global long short uh, at um, TDS at uh, management, and then uh, Nesbitt Burns, which is part of Bank of Montreal and then came to Hong Kong in the year 2000, joined a publicly listed uh, hedge fund uh, called Man uh, Investments, part mm-hmm. of the FTSE 250. And I've been back for um, 19 years now. And I guess um, just like what you alluded to earlier, I, um, I'm involved in uh, a lot of other things other than uh, long short or arbitrage, but I'm very much concerned about what's going on in uh, Hong Kong on the human rights front and also on the press freedom front. So that's where I spend uh, some of my time. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so that's quite interesting. So uh, you kind of refer to the fact that you, your initial passion, I guess, or or, or motivation was for it, something in uh, publishing or, or radio or media, uh, but then. Uh, 
because it was difficult, then you just kind of took the uh, the safety backstop of finance, which uh, which I have a, a history of a background of, of finance as well. So, um, what originally excited you about uh, about broadcasting or radio or, or media? Like, well, what 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 caused your interest from a young age to to want to pursue something in that? In that uh, field, yeah, like I remember when I was uh, back in high school, I I was involved in uh, drama and debating uh, at um, uh, in the British system. Mm -hmm. So that that keen interest um, kind of uh, blossomed into something that uh, I thought, hey, if you go to the U.S., uh, when I say liberal arts education is really liberal, I even take modern dance and ballroom dance as my minor. So it's quite different from um, uh, like a traditional. Chinese family would expect their kids to do uh, right. something more uh, more safe, right? So, um, but um, when I relocate to Canada, I guess I have to face reality, which uh, <laughs> liberal arts can be too liberal. So better stick with something that's more practical Were in a colder climate. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I I guess, uh, well, DBS obviously is, is one of the best schools in Hong Kong. And I guess they had a program there that they you were able to explore this sort of thing. I mean, I, I imagine that, uh, you know, most Asian, traditional Asian parents are, are quite conservative with this sort of thing and would probably, I know my parents would probably urge me not to even pursue anything or explore that that interest, right? Yeah, way back in the 80s, we have a, a choice uh, back in like form four, either we choose the science stream or the, the art stream. So I chose the, uh, the art stream. So, um, so definitely, I could not be um, be a doctor if you choose the art stream. And <laughs> when I went to Canada, of course, uh, you uh, study grade eleven and twelve again, so uh, you have the option. But then uh, I'm never really um, too much interested in um, going into the medical profession, even though uh, my my dad and my mom they were both uh, medical doctors. But uh, it's oh, not really? something okay. I really enjoy uh, doing or think of doing. So. Uh, so this brings us to a, an interesting point here, and um, I just want to dive right in. Uh, thanks for giving us the background. Um, and as someone that has with a background in finance, uh, you know, I, I I find it refreshing uh, every time I I meet people that uh, try to do things outside of the realm of finance. I know you're very involved still within the financial world, and and you also, um, you know, you're active within media, particularly within finance. Um, I know you write for for the Apple Daily, and, and you have a radio show uh, here in Hong Kong. Um, but we're we're at a very interesting point in history right now uh, with regards to Hong Kong and what's happening in China. Um, for the audience listening in, and also for my own edification and, and learning, uh, because I'm I you know I'm not from Hong Kong originally. I moved here 14 years ago. Uh, it feels like home to me, but uh, perhaps you could give us a little bit of sort of the background. Um, of uh, you know uh, what happened in Hong Kong uh, in '97 during the handover, subsequently till now, um, and what you know, give us a little bit of the backdrop of sort of this social unrest that we're seeing because I think that mainstream media, what they portray, particularly to people not living here in the West, they don't really get the full picture, or maybe they are confused, um, and a lot of people don't really know about what's actually happening here on the ground. Uh, and the true issues that uh, that people are are basically fighting for. So maybe you could start with a broad backdrop, and we can narrow the focus. Okay, so I, I graduated in '89, uh, which is uh, 30 years ago, and then um, 
I flew down to LA uh, around June time, and then at that time there was a uh, the um, uh, Tiananmen protest. The university students they were fighting for uh, um, more freedom of uh, speech, and then uh, fighting for democracy in general. I was watching on CNN, and I saw on what happened on June third and also June fourth. Um, they were gathered near the uh, Tiananmen uh, Square area, mm. and um, on CNBC you see uh, the tanks they crushed the um, the students. So that was the time when I was thinking, hey, you know, like uh, you could uh, learn a lot about all the Marquis model, all the finance theory, but then uh, what's more important is uh, how to be a human being and um, how to appreciate uh, how government works and whether um you know a person can live safely and um and speak freely under uh different governments and being born in hong kong um we were under the british rule it mm-hmm. was a borrowed place at the borrowed time for almost 150 years and then a lot of people back in the 80s would realize that um this um so-called uh 150 years of colonial rule would and in 1997 and at that time back in the 80s a lot of people were thinking hey what would happen to hong kong after 1997 because uh some of the people from the older generation understand uh the cultural revolution that happened uh in the um 60s uh, millions of people were uh killed and then persecuted uh under uh, the communist regime uh, the Communist Party, they took over um, China in 1949. So this also uh, embarks the uh, 70th, uh, 70th year of their ruling under the communist rule, under the CCP. So a lot of things have uh, changed uh, in the last, I would say, almost 20 years or so. Now, the handover was 1997. And then we... Also witnessed there were like five different uh, Chinese leadership from Mao Zedong to Deng Xiaoping and then Jiang Zemin, Wu Jintao, and now Xi Jinping. And then when we saw this uh, uh, Tiananmen crackdown uh, back in 1989, we don't know how we should uh, uh, analyze uh, Deng Xiaoping because he seems to be like a liberator, a reformer. But at the same same time, he uh, crushed the, the dreams of uh, democracy. And then uh, it's estimated more than uh, 3,000 students were killed at that time. So I was thinking, hey, um, would I one day be ever coming back to Asia, to Hong Kong, to contribute to the place where I'm most familiar with because I was um, educated, born um, under the colonial rule. But I, I left uh, for... U.S. and Canada for uh, 16 years after 1984. Mm-hmm. So I had a decision to um, um, come back. Actually, an opportunity when um, that one big hedge fund was looking for a country head uh, in Hong Kong. And um, I took the plunge, so to speak, and I never looked back in mm. uh, year 2000. Now, the first 10 years of the uh, Hanover from 1997 uh, onwards, it was uh, fine. A lot of people might remember in 2003, we had the SARS uh, outbreak, and then the real estate prices, they they dropped a lot. And then uh, most foreigners, they would know like Hong Kong is a very opportunistic place where you make money from the real estate and also from the stock market. But not a lot of people talk about uh, democracy, uh, human rights, and whatnot. But fast forward a bit, 
in um, 2013, there is um, a Hong Kong U law professor by the name of Benny Tai uh, wrote an article at Hong Kong Economic Journal uh, talk about uh, civil disobedience might be the uh, the last resort uh, to achieve um, true democracy in Hong Kong. I got interested. I called up Apple Daily, which is uh, the highest circulation newspaper, Chinese newspaper um, daily mm-hmm. in Hong Kong. So I asked the news uh, reporter who um, uh, to introduce me to um, uh, Benny Tai because uh, Benny also had um, another feature in the next magazine. Mm. So it's like concurrently at the Hong Kong EJ and Apple Daily. So I connected with um, Benny and I realized that he also went to the same high school, same alma mater, except he was uh, four years my senior. Ah. Uh, same house too. Wow. So we ended up uh, having a, a conversation. I say, hey, maybe we should form the finance and banking group to support uh, your cause. So that's how this um, Occupy Center with Love and Peace uh, Finance and Banking Group uh, got started in 2013. That's before the umbrella movement that was uh, that happened on, on uh, September 28th, which lasted for 79 days, which a lot of people remember. Yes. Okay. So before we get into the umbrella movement, which I think is probably what most people around the world have have seen and, and would, 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 would recognize or remember, what's... Uh, what was the catalyst for Benny Tai to write this piece, position paper, uh, if you will, in 2013? You know, I mean, this was, you know, uh, 15 years after the handover. Things seemingly were going okay, smooth. I remember I moved here just after SARS, 2005. Uh, everything seemed fine. I didn't really feel, uh, of course, I wasn't that in tune to the political environment. So I wasn't you know, probably back then I was much younger. I didn't really know or was aware of what was going on behind the scenes. But there must have been something that happened to urge him or to, to push him to write this. Or was it just something that he had brewing inside that he had to just get out on paper? He, he was a law student first uh, at Hong Kong U and he went for his uh, um, higher education in, in law in, in the UK. Uh, he was um, a student leader at Hong Kong U and then he was... Um, one of the student uh, representative who it's uh, who could uh, have sit in in the drafting of the basic law, from my understanding. Ah. So he, he was uh, deeply involved in the process. I see. And then he also, I think, has a deep understanding of uh, uh, the the CCP. You know, mm. like uh, how uh, after they took over, uh, you know, there was a big. Um, starvation uh, period and also the uh, so-called cultural revolution which a lot of people were persecuted mm. and then uh, of course uh, he was also like me uh, born under the colonial uh, days mm-hmm. uh, under the UK uh, British rule right um, I guess it's um, that urged him to um, uh, and it, he was involved in many different things that's uh, regarding uh trying to bring the democratic movement uh, of Hong Kong that hopefully after 1997, we could have uh, one person, one vote without pre-screening, which we fail. <laughs> well, yes. Um, okay, that's interesting. Uh, and so the, the, the history of Hong Kong has always been fascinating to me. Uh, and not just because I lived here or, you know, for a while now, but um, as someone that is an outsider, uh, you know, I think that it, it's hard for me to actually understand, um, you know, someone like yourself who was actually born into this quote-unquote free society uh, before, and then all of a sudden that gets yanked out from under you. 
Um, and so it seems to me that this is the sentiment that a lot of people in your generation and, and prior share. Um, so, you know, obviously there's, there's disputes and, and conflict uh, within the people of Hong Kong. Um, and so this kind of reached a, a, a tipping point, uh, so to speak, um, w with an event that you just uh, you alluded to, which was the Umbrella Movement. Yeah. Um, and maybe you could walk us through what happened there, um, just to refresh the audience mm -hmm. uh, of, of how we've gotten to the state of where we are today. Right. Now, in 2014, August 31st, Beijing announced that um, uh, Hong Kong uh, basically... Uh, is under full control by Beijing. That's the ultimatum. And then a lot of people uh, were um, really flabbergasted by you know what what they announced. And then uh, prior to the umbrella movement, we called Occupy Central. Mm -hmm. uh, now, Benny was thinking the middle-aged people could take more risk because they already have a certain net worth. They could uh, go to the streets and then block the streets for a day or two and then uh, it's more like a symbolic thing sure. you, know, you sit down near Chater Row uh, Chater Garden uh, which is uh, in Central uh, near um, an area which is now the uh, Mandarin the old Mandarin Hotel mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you are not really blocking the traffic so it's more like a symbolic thing but then uh, the youngsters uh, are the ones who, re who are really concerned that hey there's if there's no fair play in Hong Kong, and 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 if the um, so-called the top uh, jobs uh, and whatnot, and also the upward mobility is limited, you know, like how how can they see there's a, a brighter future? Because they were, this is the younger generation now that we talk about the the high school kids and also those who are uh, at university. They think that um, uh, with uh, the princelings from mainland China who is uh, overruling. Hong Kong now is really is even more terrible than uh, the uh, so-called the old Hong Kong tycoons who are mostly the developers, real estate developers, and the families who control Hong Kong is being replaced by the princelings. Uh, and then, of course, if you take a look at the market capitalization of a Hong Kong stock exchange, 70% of the market cap is controlled by um, Chinese-related uh, companies. Right. Uh, and out of the 2,000-something listed companies in Hong Kong, 100-something of those, uh, they are so-called China-related. And then they have um, party members who oversee these publicly listed companies uh, overruling the privilege of the shareholders, mm -hmm. right? Which is quite unprecedented. Yeah, so these are things that uh, the finance and banking group that support Occupy Central um it's something that we fight about. We fight against these um, these things. Yeah. So, so corporate governance is a huge issue within Chinese corporates, uh, especially the ones that have listed here that you just spoke about. Um, and just for the audience, uh, when Ed was talking about princelings, um, that you're alluding to basically the the first generation, or sorry, the second generation of the previous party, Communist Party leaders, right? The party members. Uh, the kids, the, the kids, kids of the party right. members, uh, the party members, those who are in control, are mostly in the from the fifties to their late sixties, right? Those who are in power right, right. now. And um, if you talk about CCP, it, it's it's huge. Uh, now, out of a one point three billion population in China, you are talking about uh, what uh, ninety million are uh, Communist Party members, 
and um, and those few hundred that are at the top, they really uh, pretty much they control mm. a lot of things. Um, they control China. Yeah, and then if you talk about uh, fair play. Uh, it's difficult, and also a lot of these so-called princelings, they are already Hong Kong residents. They control the real estate. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those who live in the A4 area, which is like the peak area, a lot of them you see um, two different places. One is the Hong Kong plate. One is the the plate that gives you entry to China. Right. <laughs> these are like the so-called untouchables, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, you can see those cars uh, driving around the streets here of Hong Kong. Um, okay, so, uh, and I, I wanted to, I, I jumped around a bit, but before we continue, I, I think it's quite important to touch upon the one country, two, two systems uh, agreement that was set back in 97 um, and how, you know, what, what is the basis for that? And, uh, and this, because this is quite a, basically a, a point of, uh, a contention, I think, uh, because a lot of people um, argue that it, it, the way the arrangement uh, was initially laid out is not actually how it's being played out at this point. No, not really. So uh, could you explain what, what exactly is one country, two systems? What does that mean? Um, and how, how are you seeing that actually uh, play out uh, today? Now, even though the paramount leader, Deng Xiaoping, that's uh, the second generation of paramount leader uh, under the CCP, uh, made, I would say, a, a mistake of uh, uh, having like a, this uh, Tiananmen crackdown in 1989. A lot of people still respect him as a reformer. Mm -hmm. um, definitely, uh, China right now is quite um, an economic power. Otherwise, there is no US-China trade war. But at the same time, um, if we rewind the clock back in 1984, there was a joint declaration that was signed between UK and China. Uh, briefly, what it says is uh, other than diplomacy and military. Now, Hong Kong people would have a full autonomy. That means um, the Beijing government would not interfere with uh, Hong Kong affairs. But after 1997, after 17, 19 years of um, Hanover, especially in the last few years, uh, from the third chief executive to what we have now, which is the fourth chief executive, we see a long arm from China uh, interfering with the Hong Kong affairs. And then basically uh, you have to uh, kowtow to the regime, the Hong Kong uh, so-called, the, the technocrats. They don't really um, have... Um, they cannot make their own decision mm -hmm. in Hong Kong affairs. So it's like uh, George Orwell's 1984. Big Brother is um, watching you. Now, I have to touch on the 1984 uh, Joint Declaration. It's quite similar to uh, the 1951 17-point treaty that was signed between uh, Tibet and China. Mm, yes. Now, because uh, the Communist Party, they took over China in 1949. And afterwards, uh, they... Um, they had war with uh, Tibet. Now, of course, uh, China claimed that uh, Tibet, since the beginning of time, uh, it's um, part of China. But if you read uh, history um, from outside, meaning normally, like if you read um, history, if you are inside mainland China, there is no Tiananmen crackdown in 1989. <laughs> it's not even mentioned, right? So uh, Tibet... You know, in their history book, it's always part of uh, China. But from what we read and also from uh, history and also uh, 
I mean, it's in the public domain too. There was a treaty that was signed in 1951. Uh, basically, the Tibetans were being held at gunpoint to sign this treaty. Same thing, other than military and diplomacy. Um, they would not, meaning the CCP would not interfere with the Tibetan uh, way of life, their administration, with their autonomy, because they they kind of lost to um, um, the Chinese Communist Party from 49 to 51. So they were forced to sign something. Right. And in 1959, uh, uh, the uh, CCP army went to uh, Lhasa. And then at that time, uh, the very young 14th Dalai Lama was forced to, uh, to leave in exile. And then now the government in exile, it's uh, located um, in Darasala up in India. So this is 60 years of exile. Right. And I understand uh, and I empathize the situation very much because a lot of these uh, uh, Tibetans who are like um, descendants from the old Tibet, mm -hmm. uh, they live in Toronto, um, around 10,000 of them. Right. And uh, just a few hours ago, I was having a radio show with uh, uh, the students uh, for Free Tibet, the national director, um, because it was also big news in uh, Canada just two weeks ago. The U of Toronto uh, Scarborough campus, they elected um, uh, the next student president is of a Tibetan descent. Ah. But then the uh, so-called the Five Cents Army, they wrote um, a lot of um, angry letters trying to revoke that decision, not trying to let her to swear in as next student union president. So uh, it became like national news too, uh, just uh, less than 10 days ago. The situation happening now in Hong Kong uh, has some striking parallels to what happened previously with Tibet. Obviously, we would hate for, to see something like that uh, materialize. Um, and I suppose this is one of the reasons why uh, you're, you're an advocate for you know, your cause, so to speak. So, like you said, China has had long arms or extended arms into Hong Kong's affairs, uh, oftentimes where they, they shouldn't. Um, you know, they've, you can sort of scan through uh, the news and history of, of recent history of Hong Kong and there's certain uh, events that, has ha that have happened, such as the, um, the, book, the bookkeeper, bookseller um, that got taken for, back into China, yep. um, various things such as this. Uh, and then, of course, the Umbrella Movement. Going back to the Umbrella Movement, how did that end up being resolved? Uh, you know, how many days did that last for? And then wh what was the eventual outcome of that movement? So um, they occupied the streets of uh, from Central to uh, you know where uh, the old Mandarin Hotel is. It's mm -hmm. quite long. Um, they blocked the streets. Actually, I would think more than one point two million Hong Kongers they went to uh, that occupied site, uh, and also a little bit of Mong Kok as well. It's not just uh, yep. Central. Uh, a lot of Hong Kongers they were furious and they were angry because um, you know like the. Second paramount leader Deng Xiaoping promised, you know, like we will have a one person, one vote, <laughs> and uh, we are almost halfway. Like by 2022, it's a halfway of the one country, so called two systems. But this experiment to a lot of us uh, have failed uh, miserably. And uh, it ended in December 2014. Um, I can't remember what day, but it lasts for 79 days. Mm. So Hong Kongers, they don't get what uh, they want. Uh, and also, uh, a lot of these uh, so-called uh, more outspoken and more like uh, at the forefront protesters, including uh, Professor Benny Tai, 
they will be on trial, and then the um, for Benny and nine others, the verdict will come out uh, on April 9th this year, which is on a Tuesday. I believe it's a Tuesday morning. So I don't know what time this will be broadcasted, but uh, very close to that time. Yeah, very close. So they got arrested then, or well, what happened? They actually, they uh, not arrested, but they uh, went, for Benny, they went to the um, uh, police station and just um, um, and say, hey, uh, he, he reported the case that uh, he was um, basically one of the, the leaders who um, uh, talk about the civil disobedience. He didn't. He didn't break any rule, or you know, like it, in France, you would, you would set something on fire, right? Like if you see right. a riot, this is not <laughs> a riot. This is a peaceful protest. That's right. Yeah. A lot of people uh, call it the umbrella movement because even the police, when they used the baton to beat up the um, so-called um, protesters, uh, a lot of them they just uh, sit and let themselves to be beaten with blood shedding, right? So it was quite quite a scene at that time. Yeah. Uh, because it's a non-violent uh, disobedience movement. Just think about Gandhi, what happened right. uh, even many years ago. Right. So this is what uh, a lot of us want to achieve because it's, um, it's important to have a clean uh, government and also to uh, have, um, you know, like Hong Kong people choosing uh, Hong Kong's chief executive without Beijing's interference. Mm-hmm. Which we don't have. <laughs> yeah, uh, we saw that with this last uh, sort of uh, uh, elections. Uh, th- that's an interesting uh, point you bring up. What? How do you feel about Hong Kong government and and their stance and the and the members, the the leaders of this community? Do you feel like they are predominantly just sort of talking heads of China and and elected that way, or are there are there some grassroots? sort of true Hong Kongers that are trying to make, to stand up for this cause. Now, if you talk about um, the Hong Kong government, a lot of them are technocrats, uh, bureaucrats, and then you have uh, something called the Legislative Council. The LegCo, uh, there are 70 seats. Uh, some of them are functional constituency. Some of them are directly elected. Unfortunately, two-thirds of the seats uh, are pro-Beijing, and then because the way it is set up, it's uh, you could almost impossible uh, to win these uh, functional constituency seats like the, for instance, uh, if it is in, in finance, because a lot of the brokerage uh, firms, first of all, um, it is the owner of the brokerage could vote, right? And then a lot of them are pro-Beijing. Right. And then uh, if you talk about the smaller brokerages, uh, even like that, there are some bigger brokerages too. But if you count the number of uh, brokerage votes, it's impossible for someone who is pro democracy to win enough uh, seats uh, to bring to uh, Lechko. So anything, honestly, um, the democratic legislators, what they 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 can do before uh, now they cannot do because there's a term called DQ in Hong Kong meaning disqualify. They disqualify, I think, at least six uh, pro-democracy legislators in the last three years. So there's not enough votes to wow. to um, overrule anything. So it's re- the, the odds are really stacked against 
people uh, that are, are pro-democracy in Hong Kong, which is quite sad. I mean, if Hong Kong's own government is rigged in such a way that it's virtually impossible to to influence uh, the decision-making, then, uh, well, that's why I guess uh, people like you have to do what you have to do. And you mentioned about the um, Causeway Bay, uh, which is an area in Hong Kong, the, the booksellers yes. case. Um, some publishers, they wrote books, which is like the um, National Enquirer in the US, you know, some gossipy stuff, talk about whether uh, Donald Trump has an affair, you know, of, of course, it's gossipy. And then, you know, the booksellers, they were abducted uh, from Hong Kong to mainland China. One person, Guayman Hai, was abducted from Pattaya, Thailand, uh, to uh, mainland China. And then they were confessed uh, in front of um, national TV. It's like a confession session, wow. right? And then uh, Guayman Hai, right now, we don't even know uh, where he is. And then, um, you know, it's uh, scary. It's very scary. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that it's it's scary for for anyone that really wants to be associated with, with democracy in Hong Kong. And as someone that is basically a public person as yourself, someone that is in sort of the media and journalist uh, field, uh, you know, you are on the forefront of that. So you're actually putting yourself all the way out there. Um, I know that uh, you wrote a letter of request to the Communist Party addressed to uh, the president, Xi Jinping. Please tell us about that letter and uh, what prompted you to write this letter? What was in the letter? And uh, did you get a response? And did you feel afraid uh, or scared during this process when you were writing? Because I certainly would. <laughs> well, we, the finance and banking group now inside the group, 120, 30 of us. Now, I, I'm the kind of the figurehead, of course. Um, and then some people work um, uh as a regulator, whether um, you know, there's the Hong Kong Stock Exchange mm -hmm. and also um, something similar to the SEC, but they are more like low profile. Uh, and then, you know, like in um, the highest profile person other than me, it's uh, the former uh, director of uh, HR at Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. uh, he took early retirement at the age of 51 and then he joined me wow. uh, to, um, um, start this uh, campaign, so to speak. Um, we placed an ad in uh, Financial Times and also, I believe, um, uh, the Wall Street Journal and also uh, local Apple Daily as well. Basically, it's the 10 request to the Communist Party asking uh, Xi Jinping uh, to honor one country, two systems, as prescribed in the basic law. Now, of course, they say uh, even now, um, when they have these uh, so-called uh, meetings in Beijing, they would say, hey, uh, the one country, two systems will remain intact in Hong Kong and China. Uh, I mean, Hong Kong and Macau. Macau is another um, special economic mm -hmm. um, zone, zone, so to speak, very close to China. But then who believe them? Uh, these are still something that, um, that they... Um, they would mark their words. I don't think a lot of people believe in one country, two systems uh, anymore, uh, especially uh, when just not too long ago, maybe 10 days ago, um, there's a proposed um, amendment to the extradition um, 
pro uh, act, whatever it is called, that um, if you commit a certain crime, let's say in um, Taiwan, if the extradition uh, act is um, the amendment is passed, Beijing could say, hey, someone passing through Hong Kong from Taiwan, they could arrest them uh, when they land and then uh, they will put them on trial in Beijing. Scary. It could be commercial crime. They could cook up something and say, hey, uh, you have um, adultery with uh, three different women in Beijing and then one person uh, die or whatever. You know, they could cook up some, some story. Right. And then we have seen those uh, for the booksellers case and also uh, for Hong Kong uh, active uh, political activists. They are quite concerned about this uh, amendment if it comes into effect. This is uh this is pretty scary. Uh, and before we hit before I hit record, we were just uh, talking about traveling to China. And, uh, and have the, you been traveling recently? I, I have not. Uh, and uh, we we were talking about the uh, Huawei case where uh, the daughter of the chairman was uh, detained in Canada. And uh, you know it, this right. It's a very tense time right now, especially with the trade negotiations going on and this sort of thing. And and I, I you know, it's uh, for me personally. Uh, I don't you know I I do some business in China, but it doesn't require me to go. Um, and so I kind of I've shut down the travel, uh, just because it's it's it is a tense time, and it's and you don't you don't want to uh, you know take take risks. But having said that, you know, as a journalist yourself and someone out there in the public domain and quite outspoken, uh, do you ever worry about your personal safety and you know uh, and and this sort of thing? No, I'm a I'm a commentator. I, I'm not like a reporter. I, I just like a lot of people have different columns, right? And then I, I do like you uh, host um, a radio uh, program in in Cantonese. But um, I could tell you, like on. January 1st, just uh, two months ago, when uh, there was a, a, a rally uh, asking about, asking the Hong Kong government to uphold um, different things, you know, like social issues. And then, of course, a group of us, uh, we um, were lifting up signs saying, President Xi Jinping, please release the two Canadians now. Right. And then the other slogan was uh, President Xi Jinping, please honor one country, two systems. Now, without going into specifics, uh, uh, some of these uh, people who help these signs got intimidated. Mm. Um, you know, like, think about a situation, uh, and I won't give you too much of detail because this case is uh, um, right now still being handled mm -hmm. by the right parties. Uh they were intimidated at home and wow. then someone went to their office. Wow. Right. Wow. That's all I can tell you. That's incredible. So it's like a, some sort of a threat saying that uh, we know where you live. We know where you work. We know uh, where your kid goes to school. <sighs> now, that's all I'm telling you because I, I, I don't want to scare your uh, <laughs> listeners because they are global, right? But overall, I still think, you know, like... Uh, uh, Hong Kong uh, has been great, but uh, Hong Kong has changed a lot in the last few years mm. uh, under Xi Jinping mm -hmm. when he can have his uh, uh, term forever. Honestly, That's right. he is uh, 65 now. And uh, some 
analyst, whether it's political or just strict economic, think that for him to keep in power,、uh, there could be a possibility、uh, for him to stay in power to trigger something, trigger something that's out of the ordinary. It could be、uh, reunification with uh, Taiwan uh, that he announced on January second. He would not、uh, take away using military force as a consideration. That's right. Yes, which yes. is a big thing. Yeah, right. He would not rule out using. No, no yeah, not ruling、right, out that. Right. Yeah.、Uh, I remember reading that and、uh, and speaking to some friends in Taiwan about that. Yeah.、Um, and then this Taiwan's a presidential election next year too, so you know a lot of things uh, would uh, heat up in the next、uh, year or so. Yeah, a lot of moving parts.、Um, so, so let's let's go a little bit further out in the future.、Um, Ed, how do you think things are going to change? It, it sounds like things are actually changing for the worse for people that are pro-democracy in Hong Kong. Obviously, twenty forty-seven is the end of that sort of grace period,、uh, but it seems like far before then things will.、Uh, they appear to be degrading.、Uh, oh, I would think two o two two halfway through the、um, one country two systems things would change a lot. We have a thousand more days to go. Wow, I, I think so. Like if if with this uh, extradition uh, amendment, if it comes into effect, a lot of people that I talk to they are thinking about leaving. You, you know, for the second time. Right. Some of them already got passports from before,、uh-huh. you know, like、uh, before 1997,、uh, and then they come back. They already contributed、uh, to Hong Kong society. Think about what happened in Tibet after、uh, 1959. The genocide: more than 1.2 million people were killed out of a population of six million. I'm not saying a genocide would happen, but then, of course,、um, the the time is different because you're talking about 60 years difference in timeline. But then, also think about what happened in Xinjiang right now,、uh, the western region of China. Now these,、uh, they are, they are forced to eat pork. I don't know whether you you heard about that.、Uh, these are like Muslims, and also they are put in concentration camps. And then you would think, hey,、uh, why would I care as a Hong Kong person? Because、uh, Hong Kong、uh, was a borrowed place, and why should we care about China, especially these uh, different uh, ethnic minorities?、Mm-hmm. To me and to a lot of people, it's a one world, same humanity. And、uh, if something is evil, you have to、um, uh, really speak up. And then, I really think you know, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer,、uh, who was a theologian who was、uh, born during the Hitler days.、Mm-hmm. Uh, he was、uh, German descent and then moved to、uh, the U.S.、Um, He was one of the guys who was planning to assassinate、uh, Adolf Hitler.、Right. Now he was saying, "Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act." A lot of Hong Kongers they um they blindly believe that、uh, if you don't say a word or、um, you could you could be comfortable, but you know a lot of things are changing. Just like you put a frog inside a boiling water,、right. you don't know <laughs> until you are killed. That's right. Well, that's a uh, very uh, vivid analogy that you leave us with.、Um, w- so, your view is that things are going to change uh, rapidly uh, and not for the better,、uh, which is why that you are、um, trying to do all you can、uh, in your capacity.、Uh, what sort of 
milestones or goals do you guys have um you know as in your advocacy group um are there any certain events that you're trying to basically you know uh come and, and, and let your voice be heard of? Or is it just a general awareness uh, campaign for the broader Hong Kong population? Um, you know, what are some objectives of, 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 the, of the group? We, we just tell Beijing, you know, like don't use uh, Hong Kong as a place for you guys, um, you know, to uh, do all the money laundering stuff. You know, when, think about why is it so difficult for any businesses to open a bank account in Hong Kong? And also all these uh, so-called KYC no, uh, uh, and also uh, cross checks uh, from from banks, uh, all the reviewing. Uh, now a normal Hong Kong person doesn't have um, half a billion U.S. dollars sitting in the bank account. <laughs> but when you talk about uh, these princelings using Hong Kong as a gateway to money launder, and even President Xi talks about they have to clamp down on these uh, corruption and whatnot. But actually, it's the uh, power struggle within their CCP. Mm -hmm. I mean, a normal Hong Kong business person, a normal lawyer, a barrister, is a proprietor. He could not accumulate, you know, like a, a quarter billion right. in wealth, right? Unheard of. So when you see all these uh, so-called money flow, that is in huge amount. It's not from a normal Hong Kong person. It's uh, <laughs> definitely it's from someplace else. Right. When you see all these uh, fictitious, um, um, suspicious BVI accounts, yep. you know, like BVI accounts uh, and also Cayman accounts, you have the shareholder level and also you have the director level. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, uh, this is what we were told, um, the shareholders, uh, they are not really the beneficial owners of the, um, the account. Is owned by these uh, so-called uh, the very powerful. So uh, these shareholders, uh, you know, they if they do something wrong, uh, they could be punished. That's why you have a uh, uh, Guo who is in New York right now, who is a billionaire, who is a fugitive. Right, right, right. So, um, right, right. And then they are also saying, hey, um, there's a a lot of uh, corruption within the party itself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Hong Kong, before we really believe in the rule of law and then um, also we believe that Hong Kong, uh, it's safe. But then, as I mentioned to you uh, earlier, and then you also mentioned about the um, the bookseller's case. Uh, someone could be abducted mm -hmm. uh, by the national security person, right? And then <laughs> to Beijing and then uh, confess in front of a national TV Um that's scary. That's scary. I don't know whether this could uh, escalate into something um, even worse. But for, for us, we all we really want is um, uh, just go back to what Deng Xiaoping promised, which is uh, let Hong Kong people uh, have a true autonomy and, and don't use Hong Kong as a place to do all these um, uh, things that uh, that's unlawful. And that they pretend that they are doing, they're trying to do something to uphold uh, Hong Kong's core values, which is not. Otherwise, the kids would not be so upset. Right. And then they don't see uh, a future. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh, just now about people wanting to leave. I think I read a stat recently, that uh, an alarming stat uh, about the number of people that are actually leaving or have left within the last you know, five to ten years, um, mostly because of, of these issues. They're leaving Hong Kong. Um, uh, which is which is sad to see, uh, and so I think it's going to be interesting going forward. 
uh, as we as the world changes, we see the world changing on a sort of macro level, a geopolitical level. Um, the U.S. is lo- losing its sort of prominence as the the leader of the free world, so to speak. Uh, China is rising, uh, the inevitable rise of China. But then you have this, uh, which could has to be managed very carefully because I I feel like if China is if they want to play nice with the rest of the world, they need to they need to be particularly careful with how they deal with Hong Kong. Uh, and I don't think that it would be in China's best interests economically to continue down this path. That's just my view, because I think that once once you sort of treat Hong Kong uh, against how they want to be treated and against the way things were, you're going to see a lot of uh, Western foreign businesses pull out of Hong Kong. You know, I mean, if we're talking about safety now, I mean, this is, you know, this is, this is, uh, these are serious issues. So, um, and I'm, I'm sure China is well aware of that. Um, I, I want to use this time to pivot the conversation. First of all, thanks for getting into all that. And, uh, you know, I, I found this fascinating, um, actually hearing, uh, a lot of the stories, um, uh, the history that you gave. So thank you, uh, Ed, I appreciate that. And I think the audience is going to find this episode particularly interesting. I want to end with, um, uh, on a lighter note, uh, yeah, and the hedge fund stuff. Talk about yeah. yeah the, let's fi- go back to something that we do. <laughs> yeah, talk about the finance industry yeah. in Hong Kong while it still yeah. exists. Uh, you it know, does. It, it does. It might still only vibrant. Be, might only be a couple more years. Uh, yeah. But um, let's talk about uh, the work you do here. Um, you you still MDE Hedge Center. Tell us about that. Um, and uh, and I know that directly. Uh, you work with hedge funds and um, and setting up hedge funds. In fact, um, the, the way we met was, I think it was a class that you were um, yeah. teaching for the, uh, the SFC, the regulator, yeah. So it's uh, the paper six, I can't, can't remember, or trade like a hedge fund. Um, usually I have a few courses um, under the, uh, which is like your New York um, Institute of Finance. You have mm-hmm. to pass certain courses to get licensed, right? right. So, um, I uh, I do teach uh, these uh, different courses, um, and then uh, for MDE Hedge Center, basically uh, I help people to um, uh, find something called responsible offices. You you need to have a, an unconditional RO uh, help them to to pass exam papers, uh, which is a silly exam. Uh, <laughs> it's not too difficult. But back um, in two thousand three, when they have this hedge fund code. Uh, first uh, got um, launch. It was quite difficult. The passing rate was very low, like twenty something, thirty percent. Oh, really? Yeah, it was wow. <laughs> quite low at that time. But uh, um, yeah, uh, so MD Hedge Center it's helping um, people who left an investment bank or um, some sort of asset management firm to do the proper setup uh, so they could get um, the right regulatory uh, approval. Um, meaning if they don't know how to write the proposal, um, how to submit to, to the regulator, I help them to do it or to locate um, the responsible offices. Because sometimes one person is very good in trading and then uh, he wants to find a partner. You need two responsible offices at least to uh, to start a company. And then now just recently, less than two years ago, um, they also add another uh, layer called manager in charge. So SFC wanted to look uh, drill deeper into uh, how an asset management company is set up, uh, who is really accountable to what, 
who is accountable to trading, to risk, uh, IT, things like that. So I help them to uh, think about uh, the general picture, how they would foresee revenue if they have an asset management firm uh, to be set up in Hong Kong, because it's, it's not easy. You definitely, I think, at least need 50 million US uh, to stay afloat, to cover all these uh, different expenses. Mm -hmm. And Hong Kong's rent is quite high yep. uh, still. I mean, even with all the challenges that we talk about. Uh, so that's one route. And usually you, uh, when you have your license, either you set up a fund or you use segregated managed account, which is another route. And of course, another way to do it is uh, you, you trade like a hedge fund and then you become a prop firm, right. which a lot of people uh, find it uh, uh, even more effective. If you are a true believer in extracting return, uh, what we call alpha generation, then that could be a better route if you know how to trade. Because some people are very good at uh, asset gathering and then they, they get compensated uh, in the management fee and hopefully some incentive fee. Now, long funds, traditional long-only funds, you get compensated uh, with, uh, uh, with the bigger asset under management. Mm -hmm. The bigger the asset, uh, more management fee you get. That's right. But hedge fund uh, is, is different, as you know. Yes, uh, as I know uh, intimately, um, the hedge fund world is 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 interesting. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with both institutional investors, like investors into hedge funds, and the hedge fund managers recently, um, and just about how you know hedge fund performance has definitely lagged, has has suffered in the in the past, uh, really because of. Uh, Quantitative easing. I mean, I mean, it's hard to beat the market in the last ten years. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are of the future of the hedge fund industry, um, particularly in Hong Kong. You know, Hong Kong has always been a rich uh, sort of, uh, you know, a, a haven or a bed for uh, for rising hedge funds. You know, it's always it's a global financial center. It's a financial center of of Asia. Do you still think that the hedge fund model works and will it continue to work? Or is it, are we just going to be t overtaken by quants and algorithmic trading and systematic traders? Again, it is a matter of uh, whether someone wants to form a fund having a segregated managed portfolio now, uh, or form a prop group. A prop group, it's, let's say, you know, like four or five different traders who are very good in uh, trading. And then you could uh, negotiate with the um, the prime broker or, or the broker of sorts uh, to give you gearing or leverage. Mm -hmm. If you have five million, you could, um, uh, with track record, of course, uh, negotiate and say, hey, you could have X number of times of leverage. It could be like a 20 times leverage. So suddenly you are trading not five million, you're trading 100 million, right? right? Uh, if someone gives you as much as like uh, 40 times leverage, uh, and then suddenly this uh, 5 million of initial capital becomes uh, 200 million to trade. I've seen some people who uh, thrive uh, having a prop set up because they are not using other people's money. They are just uh, growing organically. Right. Now think about George Soros. Um, if you, uh, and some of you might know uh, their the original quantum fund mm -hmm. uh, track record from 1969 to 99. Uh, I don't think they have a down year. It works out to like 34% compound <laughs> uh, rate of return. So 1 million, if you compound it 31 times, it becomes 
I think 6.7 billion. It's quite Incredible. amazing. Yeah. So that that's the uh, trading absolute return model without extracting fees, incentive fees, and right. uh, management fees. So I think honestly, if uh, it if traders really believe in what they do, I think that could be a better model without mm-hmm. having all these fees. But if you have, if you set up an asset management firm and you know what some of the partners are very good in fundraising, that could be a safer model. Start with fifty. Sure. Two percent is one million. Suddenly, it covers a lot of expenses. Right. Uh, cover uh, an office assistant. Cover. You might not be able to uh, rent a very big office at uh, IFC, which is a <laughs> very tall building in Hong Kong. A uh, nice view of the Victoria Harbour, but uh, but fifty million could become something big too. Now I know, like back in two thousand and one, someone that I know quite uh, closely, one Aro who controls the majority of the shares of an asset management firm, and then the junior partner. They started a long only focus hedge fund with 10 million US and they grow to uh, 1.1 billion. Wow. And then 2006, 2007, calendar year return is in excess of 100% in wow. those two years. So two years of over 100% return. So that makes it these two uh, founders very rich <laughs> after the incentive fee you can think sure, of, right? Because sure. it's 20%. Right. And also, uh, they capture something, what we call the Beijing Olympics concept in 2008. That's before the uh, financial crisis, too. Right, right. So they capture, uh, well, they were at the right place at the right time, sure. doing the right thing. Yeah. And of course, uh, you have to time a little bit. Uh, but then I cannot say which model is better, but I have seen more people with more sophisticated uh, skill sets, think of uh, a prop model instead of uh, going through all these licensing uh, uh, hurdles and uh, uh, nonsense sometimes because yeah, it's, uh, sure. there's a lot of regulatory fouling and then um, uh, you have to go through. But then... Uh, and, and the only difference is basically if you're proprietary you can't accept outside money no it's your own money and then the the hassle because of the fact that you are handling other people's money if you want to go the hedge fund route or the asset management route that's why you need the licensing it's really to protect the the investors yeah okay um so tell us where my audience can find you if they want to connect with you i know that uh you know i mentioned that you you write a column in apple daily which is the, the most widely uh, circulated uh, Hong Kong uh, Chinese, newspaper. Chinese newspaper and you write a financial column is it every Friday? Every Friday and also I, uh, yeah and I write something quite silly on uh, health <laughs> also uh, Nick's magazine Digital which oh, is right. part of Output Daily Right. so I talk about how to lose weight uh, how to do ballroom dance uh, <laughs> you know something to keep you active when you're over 50 sure sure I, yeah. I passed that um, 50 mark last year so I'm thinking more about health than anything now that's good yeah um yeah you also have a radio show uh yeah. which i was on uh yes. talking about the startup stuff yeah um for for you guys that were listening in 
for the audience members listening in, last year we did StartCon uh, with, um, we did a pitch competition. I don't know if you guys remember, but we did a couple episodes uh, around that. And uh, Ed uh, was kind enough to be one of our our judges for that event. Hopefully we'll do it again this year. I think that was a lot of fun. Um, And so we went on the radio. So uh, your radio program is also weekly? Uh, Yeah, the radio program is every uh, Sunday, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Usually we pre-recorded on Tuesday, which you went very early in the morning. That's right. Yeah. And it's at D100? D100.net. D100.net, okay. uh, If they want to know more about me professionally Mm -hmm. instead of my democracy stuff and uh, <laughs> yeah they could go into mde hatch center uh it's c-n-t-e-r not the british spelling the okay. u.s spelling yep mde hatch center they, they can find find um uh, a little bit about uh, what i do professionally great um we'll have that all linked up in the show notes and uh and and if they do want to find or follow you on the uh on the other side, the advocacy side, um, I know you are active on Facebook. Is that right? Yeah, they, they, could, they could find Edward Chin. Uh, you know, I have a public Facebook. Uh, and then when on the public Facebook, uh, you could see my face uh, being interviewed at, uh, I think, Dow Jones. That that public page, then that that's me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And uh, and again, you know, I, I think that uh, we touched on a lot of good things here today. A lot of very serious issues uh, about Hong Kong. But um, you know, I'm I'm optimistic. Uh, you know, and I know that you are because you wouldn't be doing what you're doing if if you didn't think that uh, you're able to make some sort of a impact. So um, let's uh, let's hope that uh, the Orwellian outcome doesn't doesn't end up panning out. And, no, we uh, shouldn't give up yet. No, <laughs> no, keep fighting. That's the spirit. That's right. All right. Thanks a lot, Ed. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jay. All right. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All of the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The Jay Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer. That's J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.